This is the menu on Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Coming up this hour, an Oneida Nation farmstead is using a traditional food bartering system in Wisconsin. The federal government sees food as a diplomatic bridge to other countries, and that effort includes Native chefs. We'll talk with one about the global importance of indigenous food. And we'll talk with a New York restaurant and food truck owner about the Shinnecock connection to the New England staple, the lobster roll. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Researchers at Arizona State University are tackling the issue of missing and murdered indigenous people in the state. They're trying to figure out why it's happening and what can be done to stop it. Alex Gonzalez reports. Professor Kate Fox directs ASU's research on Violent Victimization Lab. She says the data speaks for itself. The killing of indigenous females has been increasing over the past 40 years. Through data obtained through grassroots organizations and law enforcement agencies, Fox and her team along with the state have determined 160 indigenous females were known to police to be murdered between 1976 and 2018 in Arizona. She says that number is expected to be much higher as many cases go unreported. Fox says only recently has the conversation shifted to look at all indigenous people. There is a growing recognition across the nation and across the globe that this is not something that only impacts indigenous women and girls. It does impact all indigenous peoples. In 2019, Arizona passed a law that established a study committee to investigate how serious of a problem this was in Arizona. Fox says there's still a lot of work to be done in hopes Arizona, as well as other states, continue to investigate. Fox says systemic factors rooted in racial injustice violence and colonization are responsible for the crisis. Fox says the report produced by the committee found the danger heavily affected indigenous females from 20 to 40 years old. Around 30 percent of the cases are committed by unknown offenders, with 28 percent of cases involving an intimate partner. Fox says not only is the work her primarily indigenous team producing critically important, it's being given back to indigenous communities to know and use. She says it's possible to create safe and healthy communities. It's just going to take a lot of collaboration across Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples and organizations. It's going to take the westernized way of thinking, transitioning and acknowledging and uh, working within Indigenous worldview. Fox encourages people to get educated on the true history and treatment of Indigenous people. I'm Alex Gonzalez. The Alutic Museum in Kodiak, Alaska has honored Chris Woolley as its Volunteer of the Year. He's being recognized for his research about children who were sent to boarding schools in the lower 48. KMXT's Brian Benoit reports. The Alutic Museum's Volunteer of the Year Award recognizes folks who spend time working on projects with the museum, and this year's award went to Kodiak resident Chris Woolley for his work on the Carlisle Repatriation Project. He says while he's grateful for the award, he was just one part of the research team. Well, it was mixed emotions. I was really happy, but I want to share it with the others in the group that are doing just as much work as I am. The research project is aimed at contacting descendants of indigenous children taken from Aleutic lands to a boarding school in Pennsylvania and repatriating their remains. 
Part of his work with the project included contacting the family of Anastasia Ashawak, whose remains were brought back to the village of Old Harbor for reburial in her family's plot last year. His team is still searching for the descendants of Periscovia Friendoff, another native girl taken from nearby Woody Island. She was taken to the outing program where children were sent to be acculturated to Western lifestyles. We're trying to kind of track down any reference to Periscovia, who had spent four years in that outing program with families in Pennsylvania. Not clear if there's any relatives, it doesn't sound like there are, but her story is a bit of an enigma. Willie says it's been more difficult to find records of Periscovia than it was for Anastasia. I'm Brian Venwa. The National Congress of American Indians has acquired rights to the Crying Indian, the Keep America Beautiful anti-pollution campaign of the 1970s. Ownership of the public service announcement has been transferred to NCAI by the nonprofit Keep America Beautiful, which decided to officially retire it. The ad featured stereotypical imagery of Native people and misappropriated Native culture. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium, presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort starting June 26th. Registration closes June 23rd at tribalselfgov.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is the menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on Native food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy. A federal program utilizes food to connect with global communities. The U.S. State Department's American Culinary Corps includes 80 well-known chefs. We'll hear from one of the newest Native members of that group in this hour. Also, Lance Gums has a little-known passion project. He is the current tribal ambassador for the Shinnecock Nation and that tribe's former chief. He's also the owner of the Shinnecock Lobster Factory. We'll talk with him about his connection to the ubiquitous lobster roll. And I need sugar. It's a bakery with a new tea room in Gallup, New Mexico, and owner Jacqueline Ahostein will join us to talk about how she went from engineering to baking. But first we'll hear uh, first we'll talk with an Oneida Nation farmer who was using a bartering system to create access to traditional local foods in Wisconsin. You can join us too. The number to join is 1-800-996-2848. That's also one 1-800-99 native. So, joining us now from Oneida, Wisconsin is Jen Falk. She is the owner of uh, an operator of Gahulehele Farmstead. She's from the United Nation of Wisconsin. Welcome to the menu, Jen. Thank you. So, 
Thank you for joining us. So uh, let, let's start off with a little bit of context. Tell me about Kahulahele uh, Farmstead. H- how long has it been around? What do you guys uh, produce there? Sure. Uh, we are in <clears throat> an eight-acre farm um, on the Oneida Nation Reservation. We uh, built this home and this farmstead. Uh, we started in 2018. Okay. All right. Um, All right. So we'll uh, get Jen back in just a little bit here. But um, I would like to, well, while we're doing that, I'd like to uh, um, introduce our uh, other guest we have for this hour. We have in Gallup, New Mexico, Jacqueline Ahostin. She is the owner and founder of I Need Sugar Bakery and I Need Sugar Tea Room. She's Danette. Welcome to the menu, Jacqueline. Hi, good morning, Yate. Yate to you. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to put this, um, put put a little bit of a spotlight on uh, your business here, because when I think about tea room, I kind of think about, you know, tea time in England or, you know, some kind of formal tea time in Japan. Uh, what is the concept of your tea room there in Gallup? Um, so... We created, well, I created uh, the tea room to, yes, it is, um, the background behind it is the um, English and uh, background, but when we designed this, I had the intentions of my own people, my own traditions, my own culture um, being displayed on the walls and celebrating with tea in our own traditional way but still giving it that same kind of feel so that we can still cater to the surrounding um, nationalities that are here. Right. And this this tea room side of your bakery is pretty new. So there was obviously some kind of um, uh, need for a tea room. So how how do people utilize the tea room and and what happens in uh, tea time? Sure. So what you do, it's basically right now we have it set to if you want to reserve a space, we have three um, private rooms. One is our called our corn pollen room, which has um, the ambiance of like the colors of the corn. There's sparkles and things like that. There's a two-seater chair in there. You can reserve it for at least two to three people. There's coffee table, and then there's a set of... Um, coffee cups in front of you in our turquoise room we have a two-seater you have the dishes there you know your your regular traditional settings and then crystal cups and then um a fireplace and then our third room it's our coral room where it's mainly the color of the wall is coral we have more of a japanese kind of influence because i have a big old um, cherry blossom drawn with on the wall that my daughter, who's 14, drew, and it's just absolutely gorgeous in here. But our, we have our regular common area, which we can seat up to 15 people, 15 to 20, 25 people. So, yeah. So when you mm-hmm. reserve a space, what we do is we ask you how many people you want to reserve for, um, if anybody has any allergies, and then we serve. When you come in for your tea time, you have to show up at least 10 to 15 minutes ahead of time. 
That way we know that your party's here, and we usually don't seat you until after your whole party's here. And then we bring you in, you check in in the bakery, and then we bring you into the tea room, and we have you get seated and positioned and everything. You sit, you talk, we serve you your tea. A lot of the time we serve you first off with your our Native American um, Navajo rose tea or our Navajo tea, mm-hmm. depending on which one we're going to be um, featuring that day. And then that will usually traditionally start out the whole tea time. So how it usually works is if you are the person conducting the tea time and have um, invited people, then you're the host. And traditionally, if you're the one that hosts, being the host, then you're the one that serves the tea, which means basically you just welcome all your guests to an invitation. Like It's like an invitation to speak, to talk, to let your guard down. Okay, it's time to start, you know, mingling, talking, and enjoying. And then during um, your tea time, we will bring in your, your three-tier tray. The bottom has um, the, the sandwiches, the tea sandwiches. The second tier has your scones and your spreads, and then the top has your desserts. And then you just sit for uh, two hours. Usually the time slots are around two hours. And then after that, um, we just Make sure that you're all okay. You know, we, we, we serve you three pots of tea during your sitting. Mm, that's pretty cool. That That's a that's a really cool um, concept there. I mean, I, I've never been to a tea room, but I can definitely see myself with uh, my, my mom and my sister just uh, taking up two hours, drinking some uh, tea and having some of these little snacks. They, they also get um, uh, bakery uh, goods and sweets from uh, the bakery side, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, our bakery is right next door. So um, anything that you have had during your sitting, you can definitely come on over and take to go from the other side. Nice, nice. So uh, tell me about the other side. It's a bakery. I'm sure there's cakes and, and whatnot. So uh, how long has that been around? And um, tell me a little bit about the history of uh, your baking career. Okay. Um, well, I actually don't have a baking career. <laughs> I, have, I I started baking when I was 16 uh, outside, you know, from my, my, my parents' home in Winter Rock, Arizona. And I used to bake from an old book that my dad used to use recipes from. So I kind of picked up that book and just started cooking recipes, um, like making cherry pie cakes, cupcakes, things like that from scratch, because that's how old the book is. And so that's how I started baking. And um, let me see, after that, I went off to school for electronic engineering. So I was in the field of technical writing for several years with my bachelor's degree. And then when I came back to the reservation in Wind Rock, um, after working several years in the valley, I finally came home with my kids. And we, um, I, I worked as an IT technician out here because there was no engineering uh, fields on the reservation. So I did that for several years. And then when I finally decided that I wanted to stop, I um, quit my job. And then I spoke to my companion and we discussed it and we decided we'll go ahead and go forward with the bakery. So since then, the bakery has been open for six and a half years now. What we serve there is cupcakes, cookies, specialty cakes. So if you need something you know, like for a graduation, wedding, birthday, anniversary, anything, anything that 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 you want, we will specialty make it. And we make everything from scratch. 
Nice. Yeah, I was looking at your Instagram and uh, website and everything looks pretty delicious and, and beautiful, too. Um, uh, you know, I congratulations on uh, your, your bakery and the tea room. Um, how do you include um, native Navajo ingredients? I know you mentioned Navajo tea. I thought I saw Navajo cake on the menu. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was. Yes, we do do serve uh, Navajo well blue cornmeal cake. We have um, done traditional um, cakes before. Sometimes we put a twist. We did add last year to our menu our um, Chantilly uh, blue cornmeal cake. Mm. So instead of the sponge vanilla cake, we actually use the blue cornmeal cake instead. And with the same ingredients, with the same fruits, veg- oh, the fruits, and then the mascarpone cheese uh, frosting. Nice. But how do we incorporate it? Let me see. So we will have mainly on Native American Month or like to do when we invite special speakers to our tea room. We host a time uh, for special speakers, like we invite one to talk about their their accomplishments and how they got to where they are. And then we invite people over and then they listen to them. And then we celebrate their accomplishments with tea. And then we do that for that menu. Who the speaker is, we'll change that menu to, you know, more of our native traditional, like the blue corn mash, the blue corn mill, uh, muffins, scones, things like that, fruits. Um, I think for our tea time with our presidential candidate, when we hosted him here for tea time, we also had it fry bread. Mm. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sometimes that's a must. Um, this is the menu on Native America Calling, our regular show on Native food. I'm uh, the host and producer of this special feature here. We'll be back right after this break with uh, more uh, news from uh, the, the world of Native food. The federal government is considering a plan to increase the height of the famed Shasta Dam in California. It's already more than 600 feet high, holding back a reservoir fed by three major rivers. But area tribes say the increase would further hinder endangered salmon and destroy long-held sacred land. We'll hear about a new podcast that explores the issue on the next Native America Calling. Cachet. If you are 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about colon cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. El Aqua. This is the menu on Native America Calling, our regular news feature on Native food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy. If you'd like to join our conversation, give us a call. Are there any new Native restaurants or food initiatives happening in your Native community? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to bring back uh, our guest, um, Jen Falk. She is over in Wisconsin, and she's the owner and operator 
of Kahulehele Farmstead. She's Oneida Nation from Wisconsin. Welcome back to the menu, Jen. Sorry about the, the technical issues there. No worries. I'm ready. All right. All right. So in the beginning, you were just uh, describing uh, Gahulahele Farmstead and what happens there. Um, uh, can, can you go over that again? How long have you been around and what do you produce from the farm? Sure. We bought this eight acre parcel in 2018 and we moved into our house um, the following spring of 19 and then we um, started putting together a small rotational grazing pasture and we put up a high tunnel and we have about a quarter acre um, of a produce and fruit garden. So we do, um, we barter produce, we barter fruits, and then we also raise um, beef, chicken and pork and eggs and we sell and barter both all of those products. All right. And you, bartering. Bartering is mm-hmm. uh, very interesting. We don't hear that too much anymore, but it was the uh, traditional way of trading goods and food. Uh, how did bartering come about in your, um, your farm operations there? Well, bartering has always been something I've been passionate about, and the farm gave us the ability to, heart, to start hosting an annual barter market event. So in October of 22, we had our third annual barter market. And um, it's just a, a space for friends and family and, and other food producers and artists um, to come together and do bartering. So when you look at the barter market, it looks like a farmer's market. So there's tents and there's people with stands and they have their items, their art, their food, um, clothes, uh, fabric, musical instruments, all sorts of things. And we barter amongst each other so there's no cash. Okay. All right. So um, how do folks um, determine uh, the worth of something? Uh, I'm guessing there's a lot of uh, just kind of back and forth conversation. Yeah, there's some back and forth conversation. You know, how how much time and energy did it take to come up with that product? How much do I have? You know, if I have an abundance of, I don't know, if I have an abundance of corn that year, then maybe I'm you know, likely I'm more willing to, to barter um, a lot of corn away because I have more than I need. Um, so it has to do with how much time and energy you put into it. It has to do a little bit with, with scarcity. Um, but what we want to be able to do is not, it's difficult. I will say when we started, it's difficult to not use the dollar as a measure. Um, but we're doing, we're doing our best to decolonize that that sentiment. Okay. All right. And um, how does this uh, promote relationship building among the community and and some of the producers there? Yeah, it's become um, pretty popular. Last year, we probably had 60 or 70 people at our barter market, um, and it's grown every year. Uh, And so as we've gotten better at bartering, you know, sometimes I'm collecting stuff or I'm bartering stuff that I don't necessarily need or want, but I know somebody who does. And so I might have a little 
pantry or a little closet full of items that I'm willing to barter or gift, um, even though I don't need those items. Right. <clears throat> so the relationships, um, particularly when we're gifting things, when we so there's barter economy where you're exchanging um, in real time, and then there's gift economy where I know you. I know you are sick and you and I'm going to help your family out and I'm going to make you dinner or do your grocery shopping and you don't necessarily exchange anything with me at that time but because we have this relationship you know the next time my family needs help or I need help that um, you're going to gift that assistance to me whether it's cooking or weeding the garden or driving my kids to school um, so you have to keep up on those relationships in order to make those things work. Okay. So how does bartering help uh, your bottom line? How, how do you keep the uh, farm running? Well, my husband and I both work um, full-time jobs off farm. So, you know, it, it, there is the reality of that. Our goal on this farm is to break even. Um, we are in, we're a very lucky situation. We don't, need to necessarily make a profit off the farm business it's what we love to do and so if we can do it and we can help or provide um, high quality food to our community um, we can do it at a slightly larger scale so we can get that food out into the community okay yeah, you were mentioning just a, a little while ago about uh, fabric, about um, uh, corn and, and different items, but what are some of the traditional uh, uh, native foods that are being uh, traded and, and bartered? Um, so around here, uh, we do a lot of corn trading. We have our Tuscarora white corn primarily, but there's lots of other corns that are um, traditional to the Haudenosaunee as well. Uh, I tend to stick to popcorns. Mm -hmm. So I, this last season, I grew Onondaga popcorn, uh, Onondaga strawberry popcorn. And so I've been bartering that. Um, I bartered for some maple. I've bartered for rice. Uh, so there's a lot of indigenous foods and, you know, um, not indigenous foods that are getting bartered as well. Yeah. And uh, how did how does uh, corn? Um, yeah, how did it become such a such a big uh, staple there in uh, Oneida, Wisconsin, in your tribe? Well, the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin um, was removed from what's now New York, and so Oneidas are part of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Three Sisters corn, beans, and squash are the staple staple crops of the Haudenosaunee people. And so when people came from New York um, and tried to make it here in Wisconsin, they brought that corn with them. So we have been growing that corn ever since we got here to Wisconsin. Okay. Okay. And uh, what other farms in the area do you work with? We work with Ungwankwa, uh, um, who has been a guest on your show, uh, Becky Webster, and we do a lot of cooperative work with them. Uh, they uh, hold a lot of educational and touring opportunities, uh, and then we oftentimes will provide the food for the meals that they provide um, okay. at their events. Uh, 
Um, that's our primary partner here in Oneida. Okay. All right. And um, ha let's see, are there any events that you are uh, going to be hosting sometime in the future? Well, we've put some grants together and we're hoping to get some funding. I'd like to be able to offer um, a chicken raising course this summer to a few families. And uh, that would include learning how to get chicks, how to take care of chicks, um, pasture management, rotational grazing, um, and then processing chickens at the end of the summer. All right. That's pretty cool. Uh, where can folks uh, find you or, or just learn more about the farm and the food and the, the uh, farm, um, you know, cooperation there in Oneida? Yeah, you can find us on Facebook. Okay. All right. We have uh, links to everybody on the show today, including uh, Gahulahele, which is a farmstead in uh, Oneida, Wisconsin. So thank you so much, Jen, for uh, joining us today and letting us know about your bartering system and how it's uh, uh, creating access to traditional and contemporary foods in Wisconsin. Um, I'd like to bring in another guest. Uh, today we have uh, Blue Adams in Salt Lake City, Utah. She's a chef, entrepreneur, director of IndigiHub, and a member of the U.S. Department of State Diplomatic Culinary Partnership, American Culinary Corps. She's Mandan, Hidatsa, and Deneh. Welcome back to The Menu, Blue. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining. So um, this American Culinary Corps, we mentioned it at the beginning of the hour. It's a, a collection of 80 uh, uh, well-known chefs in the country. Uh, but tell us about what it's all about. How were you chosen to participate in uh, this, this voluntary position on the American Culinary Corps? Sure. So I've worked with the James Beard Foundation for a number of years, either participating in their programming or um, as an active member of their uh, committees. I'm on the committee for the Black and Indigenous Food Fund, and I've been invited to participate with the Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership Program. So I just love that they ask me to uh, volunteer for a lot of these programs and important uh, events that they host. So when the email came, I just immediately said, oh, yeah, of course, not quite realizing what I was signing up for. <laughs> so the letter came from the State Department, and I was just kind of in shock. It took me a little bit to even read the entire email and process it and asking my husband, is this does this look like a scam? <laughs> He's like, no, it says .gov, so this looks legit. And I was like, wow, yeah. <laughs> what did I get myself into? But <clears throat> couldn't be more excited and just appreciative of them pushing for Indigenous chefs to have representation, not just at the federal level, but also the global level. So that's how um, I ended up <laughs> yeah. on this uh, in in this amazing with this amazing opportunity and being able to work with other amazing chefs, um, Sean Sherman is also part of the group. Um, 
including Chef Hansel, uh, Jose Andreas, who runs World Original Kitchen and is, is one of my personal heroes. Okay. All right. And there's um, uh, Wapipa. Um, uh, yes. Crystal Wapipa, uh, also yes, part of the, the core there. Awesome. So what does this uh, representation look like? Like, what do you guys are, what are you guys actually like going to do on behalf of the country? <laughs> so it's part of the diplomacy program. Um, they wanted just to uh, create menus that were more diverse and representative of American cuisine, um, which, of course, incorporates indigenous agricultural products, indigenous recipes, et cetera. So um, how I view it is a way to bring our advocacy through food to leaders throughout the globe and, you know, use it as a gentle educating tool, like our food system needs to be addressed, especially in indigenous communities. Here's some of the issues. Here's some of what we're doing and, you know, and this is what this meal is based on, or this is what this dish represents, this community. And did you know that, you know, we need uh, water protection? You know what I mean? It's just a way to incorporate that conversation in food. Right, right. Because food very often is a way to gather people to, for discussion. Right. Yeah, I can I can imagine that, um, you know, at a at an event that has uh, folks from all over the world sitting around the table talking about, you know, these really big, heavy political, uh, um, you know, events and, and issues that are happening in their country. And then uh, it's sometimes everything kind of pauses when you have to look down at your plate of food and um, also, you know, sometimes ha- listen to the chef talk about why. Uh, they chose to serve this food and use these particular ingredients. Um, uh, how, how how do you envision um, like your uh, contribution to to you know starting these uh, conversations? Is there maybe like one ingredient or one dish that you think would start up one of your um, uh, issues that you're very passionate about? So. That that's that's the beauty of this program, and it's not specifically a dish or ingredient. It's the opportunity to bring chefs, so we can bring a sous chef, mm-hmm. and that that was my hook. Immediately, I started to put a list together of chefs I want to bring. Maybe they they wouldn't have this opportunity, or you know what I mean. Maybe they have a conversation in their community that needs to be addressed. So for me, it really is an opportunity to not just hear my voice, but to hear voices of people from all over the country, all over Indian country. And that's what I'm most excited about, creating the opportunity for others and having them have their stories be told. All right. All right. There, there was uh, an indigenous meal served, um, and and it got a lot of uh, media attention. Um, I think this was a couple of uh, months ago, but um, I think that kind of uh, uh, lets you know about you know the power of bringing uh, diverse chefs to events like this, rather than you know it's just the in-house like catering group, and you get some big chicken and mashed potatoes and some bread rolls. <laughs> 
which is kind of what you have in usual big events when, um, you know, uh, when they, when they come along and you and you're attending. But um, uh, where can we find more information about this American Culinary Corps and and how can we follow like what you guys uh, might be doing for the Department of State in the future? Sure. Um, you can find links to the Culinary Corps on the James Beard website mm-hmm. and also the State Department website. And you can find more information about IndigiHub at IndigiHub.com. All right. Um, we'll, uh, we're going we're gonna to go to a break in just a little bit here, but um, I wanted to ask you one more question about uh, maybe some of the other things you're doing to create opportunity for other Native chefs in uh, the business here, because there's like a, there's an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial, um, you know, opportunities happening all the time, but it seems like uh, there are some barriers that uh, folks face here in Native America. So um, stay with us, Blue. We'll be back after this break. This is the menu on Native America Calling, our monthly uh, special feature on Native food news and food sovereignty. We'll be back. If you or someone you know is feeling sad, hopeless, or experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, call, text, or chat 988. 988 is a new three-digit dialing code for 24-7 emotional, mental, or substance misuse support. 988 connects you to free, confidential support. You are not alone in a crisis. Just call, text, or chat 988. For more information, visit 988.nm.org. You're listening to The Menu on Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. So far in this hour, we learned about how, ba- how bartering works among some Oneida, fa- Oneida farms in Wisconsin. And now we're learning a little bit about the U.S. State Department's American Culinary Corps. We also talked with the owner of I Need Sugar uh, Bakery in Gallup, New Mexico. If you'd like to join us with a comment on local Native food initiatives and stories in your area, you're welcome to join. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Um, Blue, um, I would like to ask you about some of the other uh, projects you're uh, involved in or maybe some opportunities that came across your way working with the James Beard uh, Foundation. And um, and uh, t- tell me about those. And then uh, let's let's uh, talk a little bit about some of the barriers some native uh, foodies and, and chefs face uh, trying to access some of those uh, uh, opportunities. Sure, absolutely. Um, uh, James Beard has a program called uh, Boot Camp for Policy and Change, Chef's Boot Boot Camp for Policy and Change. And what that is, is it's a way for them to give us uh, tools and language to um, be at the federal level talking to politicians and policymakers about food and food issues. And what we find oftentimes is when we go into those spaces, they're not aware of 
you know, this, the, the situation created in indigenous communities that have created these food deserts. And we've even moved away from calling them food deserts and using the term food apartheid because it is, it is the result of direct political action. And that needs to be addressed to undo a lot of the obstacles that are there for native chefs, native food businesses, and farmers, growers, cattle ranchers, et cetera. So that has been very helpful with the work that I tried to do. I never wanted to, you know, even dabble in politics or be in that arena, but understanding that these people make decisions that affect our lives has kind of pushed me to go in that direction. Okay. But um, yeah, James Beard has been great to work with, um, very authentic in how they engage with, with the indigenous community. And I really appreciate that. And I respond well to that. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much, Blue, for that. Um, I'd like to bring in our other guest here. Uh, joining us from uh, Shinnecock Indian Territory in Southampton, New York, is Lance Gums. He's a tr he's a tribal ambassador for the Shinnecock Nation, former tribal chairman and owner of Shinnecock Lobster Factory. He's also the vice president for the National Congress of American Indians. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Ambassador Gums. Hello, how are you? Doing pretty good. I think we're all going to be getting hungry after we talk about lobster rolls and the Shinnecock Lobster Factory. Um, this is a passion project of yours. Um, uh, how did you, you know, come up with this concept here? You know, what what's what's behind the passion uh, behind, um, uh, you know, the Shinnecock Lobster Factory and lobster rolls? Well, you know, we are the people of the shore, Shinnecock. Uh, we're located on the water, on the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, we are a peninsula surrounded uh, by water on three sides. And uh, we've always been uh, associated with the sea and uh, all of the... So whether it be uh, seaweed, kelp, or... Uh, shellfish. Um, we are the wampum makers. If people are familiar with what wampum is, uh, it's the uh, purple part of the clamshell or the quahog in our language, the clamshell, and we uh, fashioned that into actual money in the 1600s. We are a first contact tribe here on the east end of Long Island uh, in New York, and so we've always been associated with the water. We are whalers uh, by tradition, by nature. Um, but, you know, as you know, the whaling industry is, uh, no longer exists. And shellfishing uh, and shellfish have uh, been one of our main staples. We actually grow oysters here uh, in our community. We had one of the first solar oyster hatcheries uh, on the entire East Coast back in the 1970s um, when solar was just taking uh, formation. Um, so it's sort of kind of natural that you know I've, I flowed into this, uh, this area. Uh, and I was just out one day. I was on my boat, and I stopped uh, into a restaurant that had a boat dock, and I tried a lobster roll, and it just was not good. Um, and I had been... 
uh, up on Cape Cod a lot with the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, and I'd eat a lot of lobster up there, and it's, it was just a different flavor. And I sort of got this in my head that, you know, the need for a real... Uh, we're, we'll um, uh, fix your, your phone line there, uh, but it seems like, you know, there was a need for a good, a better lobster roll in the area. Uh, this is the menu on Native America Calling. This is our regular feature on Native food and food news where I talk with folks who uh, maybe have new food businesses, new restaurants. Uh, I talk with folks who are in the middle of uh, issues related to food. Um, you can join our conversation always. We're at 1-800-996-2848. Um, if you have any uh, news from uh, the culinary community in your native community. Uh, let's go back to uh, Lance Gums here. Yeah, so there was a need for a good lobster roll, some good lobster dishes. Uh, go, go ahead, uh, keep going. Well, yeah, there was this need um, that I saw what I did was actually uh, and I went on the North Fork and went to every single place that had lobster I'm in the North Fork. Uh, if you look at Long Island, there's two forks that stick out into the water. And I tried every single lobster roll, and they just were that good. And so the concept came Yep. <laughs> All right. Um, well, uh, Lance, we'll we'll get back to you in in just a bit. But uh, doing all kinds of research, you know, eating every lobster roll in the area, trying different restaurants, trying uh, different ingredients and um, ways of cooking things is the the fun part of the business, the creative part of the business. Let's bring back uh, Blue Adams. She is an entrepreneur and a chef herself. Uh, Blue, uh, can you relate to um, what Lance is talking about? Just looking around, going into the community, doing your own research. How, how big of a process is that to the entire process of starting a restaurant, Blue? Wow. It, so it's, it's very difficult, and most of the reason is a lot of our food is imported. So my, my mission was to eventually open a beautiful restaurant on the Navajo Reservation. But what I realized quickly is even though we have a lot of food producers, farmers, et cetera, there really is no support for them to get their product to market. Okay. All right. Um, so, Blue, um, I think we have uh, Lance Gums back. Sorry about that. Keep going back and forth. Uh, Lance, Lance, tell me about uh, the, the Shinnecock Lobster Factory. Um, after you've done all of this uh, work, all of this research, eating, you know, tons of lobster rolls in the area, um, what was it like coming up with the menu and who were your culinary partners there? Uh, well, I have a culinary partner. His name is Marco Borelli. He's a great chef that was on the East End here. And uh, we decided to collaborate on this because uh, I had an idea of what I wanted. Uh, and I've cooked seafoods my entire life. And so we collaborated on flavored lobster rolls, not just your regular, 
everyday lots of roll that you can get at any place, but we wanted to create uh, a number of flavors. So we created a Caucasian lobster roll, a fried Diablo lobster roll, a BLT. Uh, of course, you know, the classic lobster roll with two types of mayo, a chipotle mayo and a lemon-flavored mayo. Um, and then we went into other areas of lobster, too. We did lobster ravioli, lobster mac and cheese, lobster quesadillas, uh, lobster kebabs. Uh, so it became everything lobster um, that mm-hmm. you could imagine could be made with uh, lobster. We have a, uh, a uh, lobster fried Diablo uh, spaghetti dish that's made with uh, a, a um, squid spaghetti. Um, so it, it is very unique in that aspect, and there's nothing like it. Um, you know, we have a, our, our logo says the best lobster rolls in the Hamptons, but I think we're technically the best lobster rolls on the planet now. <laughs> All right. Yeah, lobster rolls, that is the area to have lobster rolls up in in uh, uh, Shinnecock, uh, New York area. Um, so for us down here in New Mexico, which is where our um, studio is here, um, and, and uh, throughout you know, for the listeners who uh, may not be familiar with a lobster roll, uh, what makes a good lobster roll? Um, well, it starts with the lobster that you use. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots of lobster, uh, you know, on the coastal lines, uh, you know, out out in uh, the Pacific. But what we noticed is that um, the lobster that actually comes from Maine with the cold waters has the best flavor. Uh, the colder the water, the sweeter the lobster. And so we actually drive to Maine two times a week to pick up fresh lobster. So we get pick up the lobster, we bring it down, uh, we cook it fresh right here, we shuck it, and uh, make it fresh uh, every single day. Uh, we make a new batch, and y- you can't you can't describe the flavor because warm water lobster has a a little less of a, I guess, a salty flavor to it. Mm. Uh, And it's one of the things we noticed about the Pacific uh, seafood as well. Uh, And it's a little thing that I didn't know. I was working with a group from Cornell um, University and they were talking about, you know, the water. And I didn't realize that the Atlantic Ocean has the salinity in the Atlantic Ocean is greater than that in the Pacific. So our seafood uh, in the Atlantic has a little bit saltier taste than the seafood out of the Pacific Ocean. And so it really uh, serves uh, its purpose in a lot in, in lobster uh, to have real uh, fresh Maine lobster. Uh, it's it's you can't compare it with anything else. Right, right. And uh, so, so what is your clientele like? You're, you're right there in the uh, Shinnecock Reservation. Um, and, and what is the, um, I guess, uh, re- reviews you get from folks who visit? Uh, it's actually the who's who of everything, the who's who of mm-hmm. uh, business, the who's who of the music industry, everyone comes to the Hamptons um, from the city for the summer and, you know, the off months. Um, so it's really uh, uh, fascinating to see how many people pull up in their Lamborghinis and their uh, 
the Rolls Royces and and uh, you know the Mercedes and the Mercedes and the, the BMWs are like the everyday car. Um, so it's really fascinating to see all of the people that pull up um, for for a lobster roll. It, it's um, we've had you know Mark Zuckerberg there from Facebook. Um, we've had. Uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, I mean, you, you name it. It's it's been like a who's who of uh, people that have come by, you know. And we opened up um, five years ago, and right before COVID, and we we're like, uh oh, you know, we're gonna lose it. And mm-hmm. believe it or not, we actually thrived during the COVID because every one of the you know the multi-millionaire, billionaires, zillionaires that live around us. Uh, came out from the city. They were moving out from the city to get away from COVID, and their choice of food was lobster. So instead of uh, actually losing business during the COVID and going, you know, really down, mm. we actually thrived during the COVID uh, uh, pandemic uh, with everyone uh, ordering from Grubhub, uh, Uber Eats, DoorDash. So it really um, put us on the map, you know, actually during COVID. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and do you, you all opened a food truck. Uh, any any other uh, um, uh, plans to expand or have any like special projects coming up? Well, actually, um, too, yes. The food truck we just added to um, our repertoire uh, this summer, and we do uh, shows and and some of the you know all of the uh, fairs and stuff with the food truck. Um, but we are now in the process of building an indoor actual restaurant for the lobster factory. Um, it's really like a, a, um, most of you don't know about Coney Island, but Coney Island, you walk up to windows on, on the boardwalk and get a, uh, get your food. And that's the same concept that we had here um, with uh, our little lobster factory. It's just a walk up to a window. We have uh, a deck with chairs and umbrellas, and then we have a lot of seating uh, in the back. And, you know, it's something that um, we uh, are looking forward to is building this new restaurant um, that is going to be year-round because we are uh, basically uh, nine months out of the year. So we're building a, a restaurant that will be uh, indoor, outdoor, and still have the the feeling of the takeout. We will still keep the takeout window uh, as well. So it's an exciting project coming up, and we're looking forward to it. All right. All right. Thanks, Lance. Uh, that's Lance Gums, tribal leader and the owner of Shinnecock Lobster Factory. Thanks to all of the other guests we had today. We had Blue Adams. We had Jacqueline Hosting from I Need Sugar Bakery and Jen Falk from uh, the Gahulahele Farmstead in Wisconsin. Join us Monday for another lineup of discussions about indigenous issues and topics. That's Monday through Friday uh, on Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. We'll see you later. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, 
protecting tribal sovereignty and keeping dollars in Indian country are Ameren's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Ameren.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Cachet. If you are 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about colon cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. El Aqua. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.